In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our text for our meditation this evening is recorded for us in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, beginning at the fourth verse. They set out from Mount Hor along the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people became very impatient along the way. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Look, there is no food, there is no water, and we are disgusted by this worthless food. The Lord sent venomous snakes among the people, and the snakes bit the people. As a result, many people from Israel died. The people went to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed on behalf of the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a venomous snake and put it on a pole. If anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will live. Lord, these are your words, and therefore they are your truth. We ask that you'd increase our faith through them. Amen. Dear fellow redeemed, foreshadowing is a literary technique in which an author will drop clues or hints for his audience to find early on in the story that point to what is going to come in the future especially pointing to the climax of the plot line. If an author is really good at foreshadowing, he'll make those hints and clues so subtle that the audience hardly notices them until the very end of the story. And then they see all of the puzzle pieces put together, all of the dots connected so well. They see the author, a master at work. Perhaps to give you a little fictional example of foreshadowing, I want you to imagine that you're watching a movie. And at the beginning of a movie, the movie, you see a man who's washing dishes in his apartment. The camera pans ever so slightly to note a ceiling tile that has a brown spot on it. He doesn't say anything about it, and there isn't much attention brought to it. But at the end of the film, a pipe bursts and floods the entire apartment might be just a small example of foreshadowing. In our Latin series this year, Road to Redemption, we see plenty of foreshadowing. Foreshadowing really by the greatest master author of all, God himself. As he records not only events of things that happened in a book, but things that actually happened in reality. Things that were to point us to the climax of the story. And we as New Testament Christians today know what that climax is, don't we? We know the climax of the story of salvation, the climax that ends ultimately at the cross as Jesus suffers and dies there. Well, this evening as we take up our theme, Road to Redemption, let us consider the sub-theme from pole to pole as we see how the pole in the wilderness pointed to the pole on Calvary. If you know a little bit of a, the context for our lesson for this evening, you might be a bit frustrated with the children of Israel. I think each and every one of us probably learned in Sunday school the wonders of what God did for the children of Israel, how he brought them out of Egypt with ten plagues, miraculous signs, right? Causing Pharaoh to finally let his people go. And he brought them into the wilderness and provided wondrously for them. What do we see concerning the children of Israel? They're complaining. They're complaining that they're in the wilderness. Why did you take us up out of Egypt? 
We maybe scratch our heads a little bit. Which would you prefer, slavery in Egypt or freedom, even if it is in the wilderness? And they go on complaining about their conditions as well, that they have no water and they have no food and the food they have is worthless. Wait a minute. So you actually have food? The food they have, as we well know from Scripture, was miraculously provided for them by God, right? The manna that just appeared in the morning, the quail in the evening, they hardly had to work for any of it. And yet they complain about all of it. As much as we maybe want to pull our hair out when it comes to the children of Israel, can't we see ourselves in them? We think about the ways in which God has provided for us so graciously. We aren't living in slavery. We ourselves live in a wonderful land filled with so many freedoms. Yet how often we complain. We think about the way in which God has provided for us physically. He's provided us food and clothing, shelter, and so much more than just those basic necessities. And yet, we find ourselves complaining despite the fact that we have it better than the vast majority of people on earth. A number of years ago, I remember hearing a comedian do this routine on air travel. And he was commenting how people will tell you their horror stories about what happens to them when flying or in the airport. Well, they'll complain that their flight is delayed or how they're out on the tarmac for 40 minutes or maybe how the seat isn't that comfortable or how the food was terrible. And he went on to say, and then what happened? Then did you experience the amazing miracle of human flight? He went on to say that every human being that flies in an airplane shouldn't complain in any way, but instead should be grasping those armrests saying, wow, I'm flying. And he went on to point out that air, air flight is, is truly amazing. Even though we take it for granted, you're literally on a chair in the sky. Doesn't that maybe characterize us when it comes to the incredible blessings God has showered down upon us? Things are truly amazing, truly wonderful, and yet we complain. God decided to discipline the children of Israel to help them see their sin of complaining. And so what did he do? Well, he sent those poisonous snakes in among them, snakes that bit people. And people actually were dying as a result of these bites. We might say to ourselves, well, isn't that kind of harsh, God? I mean, did you really have to use corporal punishment with them? I mean, they're not two. They're not like a two-year-old whose only language of discipline they understand is pain. Or was it? Then you wonder if the children of Israel really would have seen their sin without the snakes. So too it is with us as well. There's many times that we maybe get caught up in a, a particular sin, maybe a certain pet sin that we have that we continue to commit again and again and again. And it seems that there's hardly any consequence for this sin, so what does it really matter? Does God perhaps allow trouble at times to come into our lives as a way maybe to show our sin to us? 
And we don't always know if trouble that, that comes is a direct result of a sin we've committed or if it's just on account of, of sin in general in the world. Yet, God would have us recognize those times of difficulty, trouble, and suffering as opportunities to really see the judgment that our sins deserve and to repent. That's what the children of Israel did in our text for today. You know what they did? They didn't just merely say, well, I, I guess we sort of messed up. No, they said, we have sinned. We have sinned against the Lord and we have sinned against you, Moses. Where do they turn? They turn to God and to his called servant, don't they? To ask that God would show mercy on them. God certainly invites us to do the exact same thing today. To recognize our own sins, especially our sins of ingratitude for all the tremendous blessings that God has showered down upon us and to turn to him and to turn to his called servants to plead God's mercy that he might show it to us. You know, they, they asked Moses to pray that God would take the snakes away. It's kind of interesting how God responded. God didn't quite answer the prayer the way that they asked it. They prayed to take the snakes away. Maybe they were envisioning for themselves that God would send in birds of prey to swoop down and take care of those deadly snakes or maybe cause this uh, terrible disease to infect them and so they'd all die. But we don't hear about any of that, about God getting rid of the snakes. What God does do is he takes care of the poisonous bite, doesn't he? So that that bite of the snakes won't lead to death. And he does it in, in really the most unusual fashion. He tells Moses to make a snake, to fashion one, and to put it up high on a pole. And he says that anyone who looks upon that snake will not die as a result from those poisonous bite, bites from the snakes. How did that even work? Well, it wasn't that the snake was so special in itself that it emanated magical powers into the people's eyes in order to heal them. But it was because God had promised it. You see, really what he was inviting the people to do was to put their faith in him, to trust that he would heal them, even if the way in which he gave them was so incredibly unusual. And he did. Now, all of this was a bit of foreshadowing on God's part. In fact, Jesus himself tells us in John chapter 3 how that serpent in the wilderness connected to something that would come later on. Jesus says this in John chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so, the, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see, Jesus draws the connection to the cross. That just as that snake was lifted up in the wilderness so that anyone who looked upon that snake would be spared death, so too the Son of Man, the Savior himself, Christ, the one who spoke these words would be lifted up on another pole, the pole of the cross, that anyone who looked to him would be spared not just physical death here on this earth, but eternal death, eternal judgment for their sins. You know, when we, 
remember this story from the Old Testament of the serpent put up on the pole. It's perhaps hard for us not to remember another famous snake or famous serpent in the scriptures. We think about the devil, how he appeared in the form of a snake in the Garden of Eden, and how he tempted Eve. How did he tempt her? Don't trust God. Don't, don't trust what he says. Listen to your own heart. Do what feels right. And so she did. She turned away from God and his word, fell into sin, gave the apple or the fruit to her husband, and he ate it as well. Both fell into sin. Have you ever wondered why? Why did the devil tempt them? Why does the devil tempt us even today as well? Well, it's good to remember what happened way back in the beginning, how God had created the devil as really a good angel. An angel that had free will, but he chose to use that free will and turn against God. He sought God's power and authority for himself. He sought to destroy God, but that's impossible. It's impossible to destroy the creator, mighty maker of heaven and earth. As a result of his sin, of course, he had to be cast out of heaven. But he still desired to harm God. And if he can't attack him directly, then he would attack what God wants. And we know well what that is. As the scriptures testify, God, our Savior, wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so that's the devil's play. That's why the devil tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. That's why he tempts us even today to steal us away from God so that God doesn't get what he wants, us with him forever in heaven. But Jesus came to solve that problem. He came to put an end to the devil's threats against us. And how he did it ultimately was at the cross. You see, the devil threatens us with our sin, and he says, because of your sin, you deserve eternal punishment in hell forever. You don't deserve to be with God. You don't deserve heaven. But Christ came to take away the punishment that our sins deserve. That's why he went to the cross, so that he could bear in his own body our guilt, our sin, so that those who look to him need not fear the devil. The story is told of a, a group of pioneers heading out west many, many years ago. And as they're heading across the Great Plains, they see a very startling sight, smoke in the horizon. And it grows and grows, and soon it seems to be taking up the entire horizon from north to south, and they realize what it is. The prairie grass is on fire, and the wind is blowing their way. They know they, they passed a river about a day's journey behind them, but there isn't enough time. The fire's coming too quickly. What to do, what to do. Thankfully, the leader came up with an idea. He gathered the men and he instructed them to follow him and they went back a ways behind the entire company and he instructed them to set fire to many acres of prairie grass. And so they did. They allowed it to, to burn out completely. And then they instructed everyone, every man, woman, and child, all the oxen and the carts, to come back over that burnt patch of grass. And then they waited. 
as the smoke got closer, and soon they saw the flames, and, and the flames were then all around them, and one of the little girls cries out, well, aren't we going to get burned? To which the leader responded, no, my dear, we're not going to get burned because we are standing where the fire has been. How true it was for that company of people heading out west. Because they stood in that place that the fire had already burned over, they need not fear the flames as they were approaching. What an excellent picture that is for us concerning the cross of Christ. You see, the, the fires of God's judgment have poured down on Christ already. Christ has suffered the punishment for every last sin of every human being in the entire world, and that includes you. you. That includes even your sins. Looking to Christ, trusting in him as the one that has suffered your punishment, we stand where the fires have been. And so when the devil throws our sins in our face and accuses us of the guilt that we deserve, we can say, yes, devil, I know my sin. I know what it deserves, but that sin has been paid for. The punishment has been paid in full in Christ at the cross. You have nothing to hold against me any longer. At the beginning of this sermon, I did something which is a bit unusual for myself. Maybe you noticed it. I made the sign of the cross. It was a bit of my own shallow attempt at foreshadowing. Foreshadowing the climax of this sermon in the cross of Christ. It's really not just the climax of the sermon, but it's really the climax of your salvation. The climax of the passion history of Christ who went to the cross for you. Who suffered and died there. Suffered the punishment that all your sins deserve. And he invites every one of us to continually, every day, to look to that cross of Christ. To be reminded of it. To be reminded that Christ suffered our punishment. Trusting in him, we stand where the fires have been. It's what wonderful foreshadowing we have seen in our lesson for today. It points us ultimately to the cross of Christ on Calvary, where Christ suffered and died for our sins. Let us pray. O faithful cross, thy burden brings comfort to the world. The branches of no other tree, no banner e'er unfurled. Proclaim the wondrous love of God so clear for all to see. The tree of life, the holy cross, declares God's love for me. Amen. And we continue with our hymn.